The reading is from Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 1, on page 1098. Acts chapter 6, 1098. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's the time of year when um, the Church of England and uh, other churches tend to ordain their clergy. It's the time in the church's calendar which is called Peter-tide, presumably after the Apostle. Some clergy do get um, ordained in Michaelmas, which is the end of September. I did, in fact, because the guy who I was going to follow hadn't moved. So I was just basically told, go walk about. So I was watching The King and I on telly, and a friend of mine had just gone to do his PhD in Thailand, and he'd said, oh, come out and see me. So next day, found out how to get there, off I went, really. And I had my retreat. You're supposed to have a retreat if you're... um, Usually they have silent retreats. I actually went to Hua Hin, which is in those days quite a small little resort in the Gulf of Thailand, which was uh, run by... OMF, the Overseas Missionary Fellowship. And amongst other things, because I was told to prepare myself for ordination, but because I was in out of the country, I had to do it myself. Um, I actually listened to David Pawson tapes, would you believe it? And here we are. So anyway, so, so there are exceptions. But I thought that perhaps to, to fill up a little sort of six-week gap before we kind of hit the, the summer, I thought that... Um, we do a little series on what vicars uh, get up to and that that might be helpful for me, if not you. So this week it's deacons, and the next uh, time it's presbyters, and then we're going to do uh, three weeks on what clergy call hatches, matches and dispatches, which you can probably work out what they refer to, some of our principal engagements with you. And um, we're not doing bishops because I did that a couple of years ago. It's not because I don't know what bishops do or that I, um, you know, get a cheap joke and say the sermon would be too short. Um, In fact, bishops actually usually, most of them, have a very full-on sort of program. But I think if you ask them and probe, you probably find that um, they have realised they spend an awful lot of time which isn't their core business, as we'll probably discover 
as we uh, explore this Acts chapter 6. We'll also be doing every member ministry because church ministry is not the sole domain of the clergy. And that will be done by a layman because the clergy will be conspicuous by our absence by preaching or ministering elsewhere on that particular Sunday. So Acts 6, 1 to 6. The early church had got off to a dynamic and an explosive start where the church attracted thousands, 3,000 on one day, 5,000 on another day. Just so as not to depress ourselves, the rest of the Acts of the Apostles, when you read about an apostle going somewhere and speaking in the Areopagus or in the synagogue, there's usually mention of three or four or five names. You know, it's those sorts of numbers. And that is the way that the gospel does, in fact, spread. It express, it's by handing on the word of God, the message of salvation, to one-to-one, small groups. And that's how the church has grown these last 2,000 years. But the church had got off to an explosive start, principally, I think, because... Um, it um, started on one of the feasts that Jews had gathered from all over the world to celebrate. There were loads of them there at that particular time. And so there is a counter-attack instigated against the church by the one who doesn't want the church to succeed. So there had been um, two diabolic tactics employed by the devil. First, persecution, arresting, imprisoning, beating, and trying to intimidate the apostles into silence so as to curtail the spread of the word. But that's been a spectacular failure. So when persecution from outside the church failed, the devil tries to corrupt it from within. And there is the well-known example of the couple Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit. Their disobedience was dealt with very severely and great reverence and awe was the result. But if neither persecution from outside nor corruption from inside were making much headway in stopping the church... Now we find a new strategy is launched. Distraction. Try and get the apostles all tied up in something that was important in the life of the church, but not actually in their job description, not what God wanted them to concentrate on. Social administration was essential but it was not what the apostles were meant to be spending their time on. So by distracting them from their task of praying and preaching, the church would stall. It would stop growing, and with no defence against false teaching, it would fragment and dissipate. This was the third tactic, to try and halt the growth of the early church. So let's identify the problem, verse 1. Let's look at the solution, 2 to 6. 
and then see what lasting principle can be drawn from this. And finally, let's look at the outcome in verse 7. So the problem, now the good news is that the number of disciples was increasing. But there arose complaints from the Grecian Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of the food. Whereas the widows from the Hebraic Jewish background, all now Christians, were doing okay. Now a bit of explanation. The Grecian or Hellenistic Jews were descendants of Jews who in earlier centuries had dispersed throughout the Mediterranean and the Middle Eastern region, either because of invasion or persecution or simply to seek their fortune. They would, from time to time, return to Jerusalem at the great feasts of Passover, Tabernacles and Pentecost. And here they had returned on pilgrimage at Pentecost to Jerusalem. But just to further complicate things, some may well have decided to settle back in their homeland. The Hebraic Jews were those who lived in Israel. The Hellenistic Jews spoke Greek. They had earlier translated in Alexandria in Egypt the Old Testament into Greek. And the word translated complained is use of the murmurings against Moses by the ungrateful Hebrews as they migrated out of slavery in Egypt and across Sinai 1,300 years earlier. Here then, some of the Grecian Jewish Christians are murmuring against the apostles who received relief money, we read of in Acts 4, 35 and 37, and who were then expected to distribute it fairly amongst those in need. So grumbling, both the apostles Peter in his letter in 1 Peter 4.9 and the apostle Paul in Philippians 2.14 say is inappropriate for a Christian. Constructive discussion is fine, but moaning unconstructively is a no-no. Go through the Old Testament and uh, God has a particular soft spot for widows and he is portrayed as their defender. With their husband gone, they were financially very vulnerable, especially if they were weakened by old age and infirmity or lacked relatives to support them. So the church in the pre-welfare state days accepted responsibility for them and had quickly arranged for a daily distribution of food for them. Now, there doesn't seem to have been any deliberate bias or neglect, but in the chaos that must have ensued in the first few weeks of uh, the church, with thousands joining it, it seems that perhaps some of these less well-known, probably minority groups, the Grecians, um, that they were missing out, and that's the problem. So what's the solution, verses 2 to 6? The apostle wisely enlists the help of the complainants in solving the problem. So the twelve gathered, we read, all the disciples together, verse 2. 
Now, the problem wasn't a theological one. It was a problem of organization and supervision, social administration. If it had been a theological one, doubtless the apostles would have reserved judgment to themselves because, after all, they are the ones who have been divinely commissioned to pass on the faith that Jesus had taught. They'd been with him for three years. They were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. They had that six weeks intensive period between the resurrection and the ascension when, gosh, their eyes must have been wild open. They, They were reminded of what Jesus had taught, but now, looking with hindsight, it all made sense to them. And then they were uh, the people who were entrusted with uh, passing on, writing down the record of what Jesus had said and done, inspired by the Spirit to make sure they didn't make any mistakes in doing so. And that apostolic tradition, which we call the New Testament, is what has been passed down the ages so that we too can encounter Jesus through reading what he taught and what he did. And we connect with him through the scriptures and we are then in union with him. He lives in us, we live in him. So they started... um, they stated the problem from their perspective very clearly. They say it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. It was not a, co- a case of the apostles thinking such a ministry was beneath them. It was more the case that their ministry, the ministry Jesus command, commissioned them into, was that of passing on the gospel preaching and teaching and writing along with prayer. And they were meant to concentrate on that. Doing something that was not their ministry was nonetheless an important, but there was nonetheless an important ministry of the church was a distraction and prevented them from getting on with their vital role in the church. So the solution to them was obvious. Others in the community should carry out this vital work. But the point is clear. There there was their work and there was the new work. Their work they do, the new work others should do. Hence the proposal they made to the church community. They said to them, you choose seven from among you from amongst that Christian community. They need to be full of the Holy Spirit. They need to be wise. We, the apostles, will delegate authority for the widow's welfare uh, distribution to them. And that will enable us, verse 4, to give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Both prayer and ministry of the word are both public and private. Both are needed or the church won't grow. A little aside, is this the origin of the diaconate? Episcopal churches, like Anglican churches, have deacons, presbyters and bishops. Bishops are the senior presbyters. Is that what we practice 
Is this what we read about in Acts 6, the origin of what we practice today? Well, it may be, because the word diaconia, which is uh, service, is used. But it might not be, as the seven are not called diakonoi, which means deacons. So there's a bit of agnosticism there. But their function, of course, still operates. The proposal was well received. The whole, uh, the, the, the whole group thought it had uh, mileage and so accepted it, verse 5, and they chose Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, who was a convert, convert to Grecian Judaism. In other words, he lived outside of Israel, and uh, that was his Gentile background, and he was converted through Hellenistic Jews. And they all had Greek names. That doesn't mean that they're all Grecian Jews, because just to complicate and confuse things even further, many Hebraic Jews had Greek names, especially if they lived in the north of the country, in the Galilee region, which... uh, before the Romans had conquered in the middle of the 2nd century BC, the Greeks had conquered, Alexander the Great no less. And Greek became the dominant language of commerce and continued to be so even under the Romans. Greek remained, if you like, the English of the known world. So, for example, Peter's blood brother had a Greek name, Andreas, but the family were Hebraic Jews. So we can't be certain, and that's where it's always good to have a little bit of um, reverent agnosticism sometimes, we can't be certain whether those seven were entering a particular office called deacon, nor can we be certain whether they were Grecian Jews, Hebraic Jews, or most likely a combination of, the, of both. But whatever, the people thought they fitted the criteria and they recommended them to the apostles. And the apostles in turn prayed for them, commissioning them for their ministry and laid hands on them, authorizing them to exercise that ministry. So let's turn to the principles that are enduring and which we can take away. The first is that God calls all his people to ministry. Second, God calls different people to different ministries. Third, we should all carry out the ministry which each of us has been called to and authorised to carry out. That, That way... Everything gets done. And it's an opportunity for me to thank you all because just about all of you have some kind of ministry within the life of our church. You all do something within the church and often outside of the church too. And we should be grateful that uh, each of us do those things so that we can properly function and carry out God's ministry. But the apostles were strong on this point that they must not neglect their ministry of prayer and of the word. 
John Stott, in his commentary on Acts, echoes strongly that conviction. He writes, Those called to prayer and ministry of the word must on no account allow themselves to be distracted from their priorities. Now, this isn't at all about status. Christian ministry is all about service. Both the twelve apostles and the seven deacons, if we can call them that, both have their work called ministry or service in chapters 2 and 4. One is ministry of the word, pastoral work, and one is ministry of tables, social work. Both are Christian ministries serving God and his people. Both require spiritual people, full of the Holy Spirit, to exercise them. The only difference lies in the form the ministry takes, requiring different gifts and callings. All Christians minister or serve in the church or outside of the church. Now today, pastor-teachers are not the same as the apostles. The apostles were, as I've said, eyewitnesses of Christ and the resurrection, and they had the task to record and to teach, and in a sense they are defining what is the definitive gospel. Today, pastor-teachers merely explain and apply the teaching of the apostles, the apostolic tradition, what is the New Testament. The apostles had been distracted by what was not their ministry. Pastor-teachers today, who need to concentrate on their pastor-teacher ministry, whether it's on a Sunday, whether it's one-to-one with individuals or in groups or... um, courses can very easily become overwhelmed by administrative tasks and barely manage to do the job that they're meant to do. Sometimes the fault lies with the particular pastor-teacher, that he's too scared of letting go. Sometimes he's the kind of person who wants to hold all the reins. He is perhaps, we might say, a bit of a control freak there is an insecurity there. And sometimes it's the people's fault that they think everything has to go through the pastor-teacher. Either way, there are disastrous consequences for all concerned because the standard of preaching and teaching and training and exploring drops because there's not enough time to prepare properly. And lay people don't get to exercise their gifts because the pastor-teacher does everything. Both mean the congregation are inhibited in maturing in Christ. God, though, calls different men and women to different ministries. The people ensure that the pastor-teacher is set free from unnecessary administration in order to concentrate on prayer and ministry of the word in all its forms. The pastor ensures that the people discover and develop ministries appropriate to them. And the outcome, verse 7, the apostles delegate social administration to concentrate on their pastoral priorities. And we read that the word of God spread which, of course, you can't do if it's neglected. As the word of God spreads, that's to say, 
more people hear the Christian message, then more will respond. The number of disciples we read in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And quite a remarkable development. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now that's interesting. The Sanhedrin, the court that tried Jesus and the court which tried the apostles Peter and John in the early chapters of Acts, was composed of Sadducees and Pharisees. The Pharisees were the teachers of the law. The Sadducees, or many of them, were the priests of the temple. It had been that group, the Sadducees, who had been most opposed to the apostles in the two trials that had taken place. But now it's these tough nuts who have cracked and submitted to the person and teaching of Jesus Christ. Now the words spread and increase are both in the imperfect tense, indicating that the spread of the word and the increase in the numbers of believers was continuous, not a one-off, a steady increase. And this is the first of six summaries of growth which Luke puts in his narrative. That's the Acts of the Apostles. So here, 6-7, the Apostles decide to concentrate on prayer and ministry of the Word. 9-30, there's another after, the, after, the, after Saul is converted. 12-24, another after Cornelius, who is the first Gentile convert. And then 16-5, another after Paul's first missionary journey. And then in 1920 after his second and third ones. And finally, at the end of Acts, of Paul's arrival in Rome, which had been his goal to take the gospel to the heart of the Roman Empire. Each summary either mentions the word spreading or the church growing or both. God was at work and nothing could stand in his way. So we've seen three tactics which the devil has employed within his overall strategy to try and destroy the infant church. He has tried, via the Jewish authorities, to suppress it by force. He has tried, through Ananias and Sapphira, to corrupt it by hypocrisy. And today we've seen he's tried through Eternal, uh, internal squabbles to distract the leadership from their primary task of prayer and ministry of the word through which they expose error and evil. If he'd succeeded, the church would have been snuffed out of existence that uh, we'd probably never have heard about Jesus Christ at all. But the apostles were alert to what they, the apostle Paul calls the wiles of the devil. And we too need to discern in the world and in the church the activity of both the Holy Spirit and evil and concentrate on our gifts so that the word spreads and the church grows. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, clear lesson from um, one of the early church's hiccups 
and we pray for what we learn, that we, are all, that we all as Christian believers have a ministry. We thank you that so many here have discovered theirs. We thank you for the, the part that different people play in the life of our church. May you bless us. For those of us who are still looking to find what is our niche, may you give us real um, insight and discernment. And for others who function quite quietly, may you reward them with a sanctified satisfaction of knowing that they do thy will. And may, Heavenly Father, the word of God, may that spread. And may the church grow. May people be reunited with you now and forever. Amen.